Every morning when I wake up, I have to remind myself that my attacker won't be able to hurt me today. If I don't tell myself that that, I simply cannot get out of bed. Since I was assaulted, I've lost the full function of my right leg. I still have to go to the doctor for physical therapy and they fear that I still won't be able to walk the same. I used to love to run until my attacker took that away from me. It hurts emotionally and physically to even make it to work in the morning. When I drive past the place all of this happened, I try not to shake in fear. I can't sleep most nights because of nightmares of my attacker. I so desperately want my life back, the life I had before he took it away. Now, just to be clear, those are not my words. Those words are taken from a victim impact statement. When someone has been convicted of a serious crime, the victim is encouraged to write such a statement and is often read by them or perhaps by someone else at the time of sentencing. Now, that seems right, doesn't it? It seems and feels very just. To allow the person whose life was most affected by a crime to express their hurt and pain that that crime has caused them. Well, in one sense, that is what we find right here in the Word of God. Habakkuk 2, verses 6 through 20, reads just like a victim impact statement. Uh, What we read here are God's words. Uh, They express God's judgment. But rather than him speaking those words himself, he puts those words on the lips of someone else. Did you notice? Uh, These words are spoken by those who have been violently and shamefully treated. Uh, These are the words of the victims. And what this reveals is the great justice of God. Uh, Now consider the background of this. Uh, Let me provide a brief outline of what we have seen so far in the book of Habakkuk. Uh, As we've said, this book takes the form of a Q and A with God. Uh, Habakkuk questions God, and his first question was this, uh, why doesn't God do something about the sin of his people? Uh, Doesn't God care about corruption within his church? Uh, And the answer God gave was yes, yes, he does. Uh, But the surprising thing is what God intended to do about that. Uh, God reassures Habakkuk he's going to act. uh, To deal with Judah's sin, he's going to raise up an even more sinful nation against them, uh, the nation of Babylon. And that raises Habakkuk's second question, uh, the one that we considered last week. Uh, God is going to fight fire with fire. He's going to fight sin with sin. Uh, But how can that really be possible? Uh, How can a holy God use such horrendous things? Uh, And where will it ever end? Is history just going to be uh, sin on top of sin on top of sin? That's often how it can feel. Uh, But last week, we began to see the first part of God's answer to that question. And we considered how God has given us his word to comfort and reassure us. Uh, Through his word, he comforts and reassures us amid our pain. And in his word, he calls on us to wait, uh, to wait on him. In other words, we're invited to live by faith, by faith, not by sight, to trust in what God says, even amid life's confusing realities. And that was the first part of God's answer. It, it, It ministered to me, and I hope it ministered to you. Uh, But today we look at the second half, uh, because in many ways what we're provided with here is a much clearer picture. Uh, Today God reassures us that there will be a glorious end. Uh, In this passage it is like there is a huge screen, in fact there is indeed a huge screen uh, right here, but, uh, but on this screen God is projecting a video of the future. Habakkuk 2 is, is almost like a time machine. 
God knows the end from the beginning, and, and for a moment he invites us to experience that end with him. And that future includes the full manifestation of the justice of God. In the future, God will fully and finally judge all evil. You see, this is the hope. This is what we're waiting for God to do, is it not? We're waiting for Jesus Christ to come with his mighty angels and archangels, and we're looking for him to open the books, to call on everyone to give an account. God sees everything, even the thoughts of our hearts, and one day, this is the hope, one day God is going to go through history with a fine-tooth comb. He's going to deal with even the smallest thought, word, or deed in which there was even the slightest trace of evil. And this is what God has said he's going to do. In fact, it is written in stone. When? We don't know. But that it will happen is absolutely and utterly inevitable. And so in Habakkuk 2, we are projected forward into that day. And this is the wonderful thing, I think. We view that day from a very particular perspective. And not from God's perspective, nor from the perspective of the perpetrators. But rather, we view that from the perspective of the victims themselves. Here we have a victim impact statement. In fact, it's more than that, because God allows the victims to declare his sentence on those who commit evil against them. Uh, The king of Babylon is ruthlessly gathering for himself all nations, as we read in verse 5. But on that final day, look at verse 6. Take a look. Uh, Shall not all these, all these nations, take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles? And what will they say? What will the sentence be when they declare it? Well, hopefully you notice as we read it, there are five, five things, five woes they'll declare in this passage. Uh, Let me spell these out. This is the sentence. Firstly, the plunderers will be plundered. The plunderers will be plundered. Uh, Secondly, the safe will be squashed. Uh, The safe will be squashed. Uh, Thirdly, sinners will be swept away. And fourthly, those who have shamed others will be subject to shame themselves. And fifthly and finally, here is the final blow. Uh, When this just judgment comes, nothing in which they have trusted will be able to help them. Plunderers will be plundered. The safe will be squashed. Sinners will be swept away. Shamers will be shamed. And finally, we could say idolaters will be isolated. They'll be left cut off, helpless before the judgment of God. Oh, how great a picture we have here of the justice of God, that he would allow the victims to declare these very things against those who have hurt them so deeply. And so let's look more closely at what they say. And now I realize there's a lot to look at here, so just uh, in case you're nervous, I'm going to cover each of these points uh, quite briefly. Uh, But firstly, notice how the plunderers are plundered. Uh, The plunderers will be plundered. Uh, That's what's going on in verses 6 through 8. Uh, Look at those verses again, starting halfway through verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself up with pledges. And the point here is that Babylon has been plowing through the nations, plundering their best resources, taking for themselves their very best people, creating dependency by indebting those nations on themselves, enriching themselves but leaving a trail of poverty behind them. And now with shame, I actually think of the way the British Empire did the same thing, plundering large parts of Africa and and traveling on all the way to India, 
And for how long? Well, this is the point. God will bring it to an end. Uh, Look at verse 7. We read there, there'll be an uprising, just as there often has been. Uh, Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Uh, Then what will happen? Well, then you will be spoiled for them. And this is the point. Look down at verse 8. Uh, Here we get a picture of the justice of God. Uh, Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Uh, This is the point. Listen, if you steal, if you take things that are not your own, then then one day God will take what is yours from you. Uh, Whether it's armed robbery or just cheating on your taxes, those who plunder others will be plundered by God because he is just. And he'll often even use those you've plundered to plunder you. And now this might sound strange that, that God would get even in this way, that God would somehow settle a score. Uh, it might even be that we think that we can get away with certain things in this life, but one day, this is the point, when Jesus Christ comes back, uh, you better believe it. If you have plundered others, that will come back to bite you. And the plunderers will be plundered. That's the first thing we see here. But secondly, notice how the safe will be squashed. Uh, by that I mean uh, those who've pursued their own safety at the expense of others. Uh, By safe, I mean those who have climbed on top of others to get ahead. In fact, that is what verse 9 is all about, isn't it? This is the crime, verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. Now, it could be by invading lands or overthrowing governments like Babylon, or perhaps a contemporary example would be Russia. Or it could be as simple as this. It could be uh, the person who ruins your reputation at work. Why? Well, so they can secure their own promotion. Uh, Driven by pursuit of their own safety and security. This seems to be what motivated Babylon. Uh, It's what motivates so much of what we do, if we're honest, personally, relationally, in politics, perhaps even at church. Uh, Who doesn't want to be financially secure? Uh, Who doesn't want to consolidate their power? Who doesn't want to advance themselves personally or professionally? And yet the problem is, this often comes at someone else's expense, doesn't it? If there are only so many slices of the cake to go around, surely we'd be better off if I had a couple of slices. Or perhaps even better, if I was the one who cuts and controls the cake. That would be even better. And yet here is the thing. Those who achieve safety in that way, those who seem safe, well, look at what will happen to them. Look down at verse 10 with me. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork will respond. Now, what's going on here? What does this mean? The stone's crying out, the woodwork responding. Why would the house they have built to keep them safe be making so much noise around them? Well, I think this is a picture, a dramatic picture of that house actually coming crumbling down. Uh, What is meant to keep them safe is actually falling down on top of them. And I got to say, I absolutely love this. I actually think this is a great picture. Maybe that means there's something off with me. I don't know. Uh, But this idea of being crushed by the very thing in which you trusted uh, and through which you exploited other people, uh, doesn't that sound like perfect justice to you that people would fall into the trap they set for other people? And we've seen this happen in history. People become victims of their own success. For the person who has fought hard, who has trampled on others to get to the top, well, there's only one direction for that person to go next. Have you ever been trampled on in that way by someone? 
Well, if so, one day God will invite you to take up your taunt against them. And the plunderers will be plundered, the safe will be squashed, and thirdly, notice how the sinners will be swept away. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean uh, those who build their lives on sin will find themselves one day on the wrong side of history. And now the wrong side of history argument is often used against Christians, isn't it? Uh, get with the times, that's what people say. A society has plunged into a flood of debauchery and perversion, so what are you waiting for? Don't just stand there waiting for the waves to hit you. Come in and join us. Uh, understand uh, where history is heading. Uh, that's what people say. Uh, but where is history heading? That's what we learn in Habakkuk 2, and it's not what we might expect. Uh, in verse 12, we read this. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Now, just to be clear, he isn't talking about New York City there. Um, he's talking about the city of Babylon. Uh, but in truth, he's actually talking about anyone, anywhere. Uh, people who live their lives in rebellion against the God who made them. Uh, this is the heart of what sin or iniquity is. Uh, you see, God is the loving ruler of the world. He made the world and he made us to rule over the world. Uh, and in doing so, to give thanks and honor to him. Now, the problem is we all reject God as our ruler by living life our own way without him. And by rebelling against God's way, we damage ourselves, we damage each other, we damage the world. And God is not going to let that rebellion go on forever. That's what Habakkuk 2 is all about. It's about that final day. Uh, one day his judgment will come, and on that day our, our rebellious efforts will be in vain. Why? Look at verse 13. Uh, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. And then we get this statement, a glorious statement of where history is truly heading. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And now that's why I say that sinners will be swept away. Because the image we get here is, in one sense, an image of the fact that a flood, a huge flood is coming. A climate disaster, we might say. But instead of water, what is coming is the kingdom of God. And when it comes, every other kingdom will be driven away. His rule will be uncontested in his world. In fact, Paul writes this in, in Philippians chapter 2. One day at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so, if you try to build your own kingdom now, you need to understand, understand this. Uh, the kingdom that you're building is doomed to fail. Uh, that kingdom could be as small as your own life, it could be your family, it could be your nation, it could be as big as the world itself. But be assured, that kingdom has no future at all. Uh, invest in that kingdom and it will be swept away when Jesus Christ comes again. Uh, why? Because the plunderers will be plundered. That was the first point. Uh, the safe will be squashed. That was the second. Uh, and as we've said, thirdly, fit sinners will be swept away by the glory of God, the kingdom of God. Uh, and thirdly, I have to say, this one, uh, this fourth one, I think, is a little bit tough to read. Uh, but fourthly, notice how the shamers will be shamed. The shamers will be shamed. Look down at verse 15 with me. Uh, again, there is this pattern. There is the crime and then the punishment. Uh, the crime is there in verse 15. Uh, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Uh, now, the cup is used in Scripture as a, a symbol of judgment. 
Often it's used to describe God's wrath, but in this case, it's used to describe the wrath of Babylon. And this is how the symbol works. The wrath and fury of Babylon is being compared to strong wine. And as they pour out their fury on the nations, this is what it is like. It's such a sick and sad image. And I'm nervous even to describe it because it may even dredge up for you some personal pain. You may even want to cover your ears because they're getting the nations drunk. Why? So they can strip off their clothes, so they can point to them and laugh at them. It's such a terrible, demeaning picture, a graphic picture of shame. Maybe you found yourself bullied like this. And yet, as sobering as that is, here is the point. The punishment will fit the crime. What do the victims of uh, this shame get to say to their attackers? Well, look at verse 16. To Babylon, this is what they say. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your circumcision your uncircumcision. Uh, But the hope isn't for revenge. Uh, This is not that the victims get to shame those who bullied them for themselves. No judgment belongs to the Lord. So as we read on, we find the Lord is the avenger. Uh, The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. Uh, The point is God's justice will come. He will validate and vindicate those who have suffered shame in this way. He will pour out his own wrath and fury against the perpetrators of this kind of evil. And shouldn't we rejoice in this? Shouldn't we glory in the fact that this is the God we serve, knowing that he is a God of pure and perfect justice, that one day he will bring perfect justice to his world? I mean, notice how in each case the punishment so perfectly fits the crime. The plunderers plundered, the safe squashed, the sinners swept away, the shamers now shamed. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, he will, down to every individual sin, but also on the the huge scale of human history. God's justice will go forth fully and finally and perfectly. And the final point in verses 18 through 20 is this, that that justice is inevitable and unavoidable. Babylon trusted in their false gods, their idols. Uh, They trusted in those idols to help them get ahead. Uh, They even boasted in those idols, claiming they were better than the gods of the nations, because look at at the great success these idols brought. But on this day of judgment, those idols uh, will prove to be what they are, totally and utterly worthless. Finally, then, see how the idolaters are isolated. Uh, Idolaters are isolated. In other words, those who trust in idols will will have to stand on their own before the judgment of God. Uh, This is the final nail in the coffin of evil. Uh, Look down at verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. In other words, on that day, idols will be shown up for what they are, silent, powerless chunks of wood and metal. And those who trust in such idols will be left. They'll be left stranded, alone, without support, without help. But by contrast, look at verse 20. The Lord, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. As I said at the start, this is the hope, isn't it? This is what we're waiting for God to do. 
We're waiting for Jesus to come again with his mighty angels and archangels. And we're looking to him to open the books, to call on everyone to give an account. And this is what God has told us he is going to do. It's, it's written in stone when we don't know, but the fact that it will happen is absolutely inevitable. And listen, as we live in a world full of such evil, we need to remember this, don't we? Sure, we have to revel in the fact that God is a God of amazing grace. But I wonder if we don't focus enough on this perfect justice of God. Of course, we don't want to do this in a way that stokes revenge for those who wrong us. No, that would be wrong. We have to love our enemies. But we also need to know that there is a time when the call to love our enemies will end. And I wonder if, uh, by failing to dwell on this, we actually deny comfort uh, to those who suffer. Uh, God's justice, surely it's an amazing support, an amazing comfort to those who find themselves in the place of being victims. Uh, one day, God will right every wrong. He'll wipe the tears from every, every eye of his people. Uh, one day God will right every wrong. He will wipe the tears from the eyes of his people. Uh, what an amazing comfort this is. God is a God of justice. Is that not the most amazing news? Uh, but hold on, because we have to pause and think about that for a moment, don't we? Is what I've said really good news at all? Uh, is it good news for me? Is it good news for you? I mean, we've viewed this whole picture from the perspective of the victim, haven't we? I mean, this is the victim impact statement, and I love this about Habakkuk, that God puts these words on the mouths of those who have suffered so much evil. Uh, he lets them speak his sentence against those, those who have hurt them, and I, I think that's just an amazing picture of God's justice. Uh, but let's step back for a moment and consider the whole scene. Uh, these are the victim's words, but, but let's think about the whole court scene here. There we have God sitting on the judge's seat, standing there or sitting there with his gavel. Uh, Babylon is standing in the dock, ready to receive her sentence. Uh, the victims are reading the statement, the one we've just read. Uh, but in this overall scene, consider where do you find yourself uh, maybe you think of yourself as one of the jury. Uh, you're just kind of sitting there considering the case very carefully. Or maybe you're a member of the public just kind of watching this play out in a distance. Or maybe you think of yourself as the victim, and I'm sure in one sense that must be true. But have you ever considered this? What if it is you in the dock? I mean, as I said, God sees everything, even the thoughts of our hearts. One day, God is going to go through history with a fine-tooth comb. He's going to deal with even the smallest thought, word, or deed in which there is even the slightest trace of evil. I just think over the last 30 minutes. Think over the last day, the last week, the last month, the last year. Now, on that final day, is God going to find anything on you? Have you ever found yourself playing the role of the plunderer, heaping up what is not your own, acting in such a way as to control other people by making them indebted to you? Have you ever found yourself seeking your own safety at another person's expense, putting you and your family first rather than loving your neighbor and putting the interests of others ahead of your own? If you're honest, haven't you founded your life on sin? Aren't you a sinner? I mean, don't you want to live life your own way? Ain't no one going to tell you what to do? 
And as sad as it is to admit, haven't you found yourself mocking and pointing the finger, reveling in another person's shame, being a bully to your colleagues or maybe even to your kids? And haven't you trusted in idols in one sense, bowed down to created things, money, sex, success, and maybe even put your trust in your own wisdom and strength? I'm not even going to give examples of these things. I don't think I need to because I suspect your own mind and hearts can fill in the blanks for you. I mean, think for a moment. Is there anyone at all out there, anyone at all out there who might consider themselves victims of your own sinful thoughts, words, or deeds? Is there anyone at all who on the final day might even rejoice in speaking these words of Habakkuk 2 against you? The justice of God. It's great news, isn't it, in, in one sense? And yet, for sinners like us, isn't it the very worst news in the world? You see, if we downplay the justice of God, yes, we deny comfort to those who suffer. But I wonder if we perhaps fall into an even bigger problem. If we downplay the justice of God, we become blind to our greatest need. Do you think that you can stand before the justice of God on your own two feet? Uh, Do you think you'll be able to bear it when those you have hurt cry out against you, woe to 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 you? If you think so, then you're a fool, a sad and sorry fool. But it's possible that you understand what I'm saying here. And that in one sense, as you consider the justice of God, you are shaking in your boots. It fills you with dread, with terror, to stand before a holy and just God. You feel the weight of these things, and you want to fall down and cry out, Woe is me. If so, then perhaps uh, only then are you ready to hear the good news, the very best news. You're ready to not only go into the future with Habakkuk, but you're also uh, able to go back into history some 2,000 years. You're able to see the greatest thing you could ever see, where the justice of God, the same justice we've uh, read about here, was truly poured out. Uh, By which I mean uh, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The cross where Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, was plundered, where his very life was taken from him. Uh, The cross where he who once dwelled in eternal safety came down and was subject to death, where he was crushed on the tree where the sinful house that we had built fell on him, uh, to the cross of Christ, where he, the holy, innocent, unstained one, separated from sinners, found himself swept away. Where he hung on that cross, naked, full of shame, with people mocking and spitting on him. Where he, though he was true God, found himself totally and utterly isolated. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you understand the justice of God, you understand why he did these things. He did them for you, and he did them for me. He did them so that I, a plunderer, might not be plundered on that day. He did that so that I, who seek safety, might not be squashed by my own sin. He did that so that I, a sinner, might not be swept away when the kingdom of God comes. He did that so that I, a shamer, might never be ashamed. 
He did that so that I, idolater though I am, might never be isolated. Why? Because he did that for me. This is God's answer to sin, to evil, to the injustice in the world. Either you will bear the justice of God yourself forever, or else you will put your trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this glorious and dramatic picture of your justice at work in Habakkuk chapter 2. And yet we thank you even more for that glorious picture of the justice poured out on Jesus Christ as he died for me. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would move each of our hearts to understand uh, both the glory and terror of your justice against sin. And so move our hearts to, to cry out and to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And we pray this in his name. Amen.